I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. All right. <laughs> so, real quick, let me pull this up. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, and welcome to episode 81 of the Appendix N Book Club. We are discussing H.P. Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror and Others. I'm Jeff, and joining us today is a man who just wants to rebuild his ancestral home, Hoy. Indeed, indeed. The deeper you go, the more interesting it gets. <laughs> and um, we had another one of those situations where our guest for the week just kind of wasn't able to do it. So we have with us our patron book club. This is going to be the actual episode this week. So um, I guess let's go around and quickly introduce ourselves. Uh, let's start with Robert. Hi, folks. I'm Rob Poyton, and I'm in the UK, Bedford, to be precise, just outside of London. Jeremy. Uh-huh. Welcome, Robert. I'm Jeremy Harper. Glad to speak today. Adam. I'm Adam Stiers. I'm in Pennsylvania. I like Appendix N. (laughs) And Joe. Uh, Joe Hoopman. I'm in Minneapolis, and I've been reading this stuff for way too long. (laughs) Very cool. Let's go around and chat about which edition of the book we're working with. Uh, Joe, what do you got today? Um, I have the 1978 Jove paperback, which I actually just bought like three weeks ago specifically for this. Um, in beautiful condition, too. It, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it is very nice. It has a very disturbing cover by Rowena. Um, and the reason I got that one mm-hmm. is it's a companion to um, the Jove 1978 Color Out of Space, which was the first Lovecraft paperback I ever got from the public library back in the early mm-hmm. 1980s. So I, cool. Color Out of Space was the first Lovecraft one I also read, but with the Lancer cover. And so that freaks me out for a good... That story you know, for still years, disturbs me. me. And Adam, what are you working with? I got, I got the Lancer 1969 uh, cover with the hands and the face. I don't know who this is supposed to be. This is from 1969. It's falling apart. That's Lancer for you. As Lancer books do. Exactly. <laughs> that Lancer glue. Jeremy, how about you? Or lack thereof. Well, I, I own the complete Penguins, but for this, I decided to go to the library and I got the Arkham House, uh, the Dunwich Hard and others. Ah, this, this book actually, this very book actually is the very first volume of Lovecraft I ever read. I got it out from the library when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, as a bonus, I, I doubt we'll get it. I also picked, I, ha- I own this, uh, The Mysteries of the Worm, the complete, um, the complete Cthulhu Mythos stories of Robert Block, because um, the, one of the stories in the Dunwich Char, The Haunter in the Dark, is a, a sequel to a story Block wrote on the Shambler, of the, star, the Shambler from the Stars. So I decided, what the hell? There you go. <laughs> nice. Very neat cool. credit. <laughs> How about you, yeah, Rob? There's actually a lot of in jokes in this collection, which we'll we'll, oh, yes. we'll probably bring forward in the conversation. Yeah. 
Uh, well, I'm the odd man out here because I don't have that edition. So I've been going through my old uh, my old Panthers oh. and also the Harper Collins. Most of them are in here as well. So I've basically been going through my collection and just pulling them out of those books. Cool. Boy, what are you working with? I also got the Harper Collins. I'm working with the Arkham House hardcover. Again, you can't see my background. Uh, Robert, I actually have those uh, those Harper Collins ones because somebody left them on the lobby book uh, lobby bookshelf in my building. Also, but I'm oh, also wow. supplementing nice. today. Again, you probably won't be able to see it with the um, annotated HP Lovecraft mm. uh, Del Rey ones from the um, from the late '90s. So oh, yeah. annotated and more annotated HP Lovecraft. Yeah, Remember those. not the newer hardcover ones, but the, the trade paperbacks from the '90s. So. So cool. that's what I've got. I'm in the I'm in the same boat as Joe. I've got the um, the '78 um, Jove paperback uh, with the Rowena cover, and we've got like our chimerical elder one holding like a, a rat skeleton or whatever is going on there. But it's a pretty cool yeah, cover. That's that's, uh, that's, that's, that's Wilbur. Yep, that's Wilbur. I'm also yeah. added Cthulhu Mythos, or uh, I'm, I'm I have my. Trusty Rats in the Walls, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer's book, Bookmark for this book. Nice. There you go. <laughs> nice. All right. So we'll take a quick look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Tenebrous. Tenebrous. So there are so many words we could have gone with today because we all know Lovecraft is, is very verbose. But I went with Tenebrous today. Um, on page 100 of my copy, uh, it says... It had bumped and slithered up into its tenebrous steeple just in time, for a long dose of light would have sent it back into the abyss whence the crazy stranger had called it. And tenebrous also appears on page 113. One dreads to trust the tenebrous tunnel of the bridge, yet there is no way to avoid it. Uh, so tenebrous is the word I chose for the day. Did you guys have um, uh, nominees as well? Um, I had a couple options. One is Vigintillions, which uh, either means 10 to the 63rd power or 10 to the 120th power in the British usage. Either way, it's one of those words that I think is a larger number than there is anything in the universe. Um, but he used, he used it in the Vigintillions of Years at one point. There have not been Vigintillions of Years. <laughs> um, the other one was Trapezohedron, which means a, a regular shape with kite-shaped facets, such as a classic D10. Yeah, this time I definitely was thinking of assigning trapezohedron as like an ice die because it was semi-translucent with like veins in it. You know, so <laughs> my gamer brain. And so, hey, you know, it's like a, a good, a weird Goodman die, a D, a D, you know, a D twenty third. Dice are the great old ones. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we can go ahead and um, head on into the library. Um, let's go ahead and highlight one of the stories that we're um, that we enjoyed most of all. Um, let's start with you, Rob. What is what is a story in here that really spoke to you? I think the the Dalek horror is the standout um, for a couple of reasons. One, it was probably the second story I read. I think The Outsider was the first story I read, and this was the second. And also, I think because one from certainly the gaming perspective, this is uh, a, a 
a call a Cthulhu scenario. This, to me, was probably the basis of, of the game. So for those reasons, and, and also perhaps a little unusually for Lovecraft, it's a relatively happy ending. The good guys get a sort of victory right. here. So it's a little bit of shifting mm -hmm. tone, I think, as well. Jeremy, what did you think of the Dunwich Horror? Um, well, and Dunwich Horror, the collection itself... No, the story, the story. Oh, the story itself. Sorry. Well, yeah, it's, I, I agree. Uh, I agree with Robert. I, I, it, it is obviously the model for most Call of Cthulhu scenarios. Uh, it's, in my opinion, it's a very good story. I think usually it pulls as one of the most popular stories Lovecraft ever wrote. I know the critics uh, sort of give it a sort of a side eye. Uh, I mean, at least one major Lovecraft critic says that Lovecraft meant it as a satire parody of his own works, but I personally don't see that. I think that's rather, that's rather sort of stretching. <laughs> Says T. Joshi. <laughs> well, Joshi, uh, who else? Uh, I can't remember the other critic. Burleson, I think. Sort of famous and notorious for using deconstructive methods for looking at Lovecraft stories. Oh, I can't remember his name. Might have been uh, Donald Burleson. Yes, it. That's it. Thank you. Uh, I have no memory anymore. Um, but yeah, it, no, it's, it's a very good, good story. And, and that story and plus pretty much most of the stories in this collection, um, really plays up Lovecraft's, uh, particular strength unique to the big three, his ability to just to build up world, to do world building, his, you know, setting up backgrounds, his descriptions of Dunwich huh? and, um, you know, its history in that first chapter and you know, just um, detailing the childhood of the very odd Wilbur Watley, and that's a particular strength of his that he can do that. And it doesn't feel, at least to me, it doesn't feel like info dumping. It's it's he's very good at constructing a background, a setting, um, mm. and so forth. And I think you know maybe that's what attracted Gary to his work, um, along with the, all the cool monsters. And Joe, what did you think of uh, Dr. Armitage and the Watleys? <laughs> um, I, I honestly, it's not necessarily one of my personal favorite Cthulhu stories, but I, I definitely see, especially I see the inspiration on the game. Um, I, one of the things that, that strikes me about Lovecraft unusually, and it is a little bit reminiscent of Tolkien of all things, is he's very good with his landscapes. He's very, mm -hmm. he, he knows the hills, he knows the trees. Um, it, he gives a real, more of a sense of place than you might expect. Um, the thing I really could have done without in, particularly in Dunwich, Dunwich Horror, was uh, phonetic dialect. Please yeah. do not do that. Herbert, but other than that, <laughs> it, yeah, it, it was um, it, it was a very solid story, though. Right, right. I mean, dialects seem to be a problem for Howard as well, and I guess it's a thing that's fallen out of favor in this modern sort of the modern writing style, but that was very much common up through maybe say the sixties. And Mr. James used to do it quite a lot as well with with some of his characters, and um, yeah, it is quite jarring. Yeah, yeah. I, Adam, what was I, your take on the story? I thought it was great. It was uh, really suspenseful, you know, mm -hmm. it was like, are these guys going to be able to pull this off or what, you know? So, and, uh, 
And I thought it it was interesting that you have some Lovecraftian characters who can actually do things to affect things, even though it's kind of at the margins. They do they can take some action and succeed and win against bad guys. So it's kind of cool. Right, right. I was looking for a specific passage because uh, Joe was talking about the way Lovecraft describes nature in this story. And there's like one paragraph that I just love um, where Lovecraft says, gorges and ravines of problematical depth intersect the way and the crude wooden bridges always seem of dubious safety. When the road dips again, there are stretches of marshland that one instinctively dislikes and indeed almost fears at evening when unseen whippoorwills chatter and the fireflies come out in abnormal profusion to dance to the raucous, creepily insistent rhythms of stridently piping bullfrogs. The thin shining line of the Miskatonic's upper reaches has an oddly serpent-like suggestion as it winds close to the feet of the domed hills among which it rises. I love that paragraph. Nice, I think that is nice. so cool. Mm-hmm. And it's also just funny yeah, to just incredible. imagine like Lovecraft walking through nature and like this is the way he's seeing nature. <laughs> <laughs> there, well, there are, I there can are say some, that as... Go ahead. So, I say there are some people that say ahead, that this is, uh, this is Lovecraft's homage to <laughs> Machen yes. because I think some of the language he uses is very similar and uh, the great god Pan uh, the character of Wilbur, of course, might be some sort of homage there. Uh, and I think he actually references Machen during the story. I yes. think he actually he, he name drops him, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. yep. Yes. Show, show, uh, yeah. I can say that line. as a, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, show the, I can say show, as a child growing up in the 70s, and sorry, go ahead, Jeremy. No, no, I was just going to just quote the lines. So, um, Armitage is saying, you know, what simpletons, uh, show them. Uh, show show them Arthur Macon's uh, The Great God panel. Think it, it's a common done with scandal. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Howie, go ahead. I can say that as a child growing up in New England in the 70s, that, that sense of decrepitude was definitely still present. You know, if, if you got, you know, 20, 30 miles outside of Boston, it definitely still felt that way, you know, and especially if you were driving up to some of the more, um, you know, poverty stricken areas of Maine or Vermont, stuff like that. You still have that feeling. So now I do so, have I mean, one. He was really onto something. And I do have one nit to pick with this story that I'm curious to see what you guys will think about. Um, and it's a, a complaint I also had with The Hobbit, funnily enough. But it's this idea that like, so like you remember in like The Hobbit, like we're hanging out with like Bilbo the whole time, but then it's like Bard who kills the dragon. And like, we're not even really there when like the dragon gets killed. Similarly in the Dunwich Horror, it's like Dr. Armitage comes and him in like his like, spellcasting professors like go on to the the top and like they're like battling the thing but from the narrative standpoint we're like like we're like down at the bottom of the hill looking up and just kind of seeing their figures doing this and i'm just like why aren't we there like i want to like be there in the action like i want i I don't know that that part bugged me a little bit what did you guys think about that well he he was doing that to set up the very last line of the story when the local yokel looking through the telescope was talking about that thing had Wilbur Waitley's chinless face on its back. <laughs> Look more like his dad. Yeah. And uh, by the way, remember there was that amazing Errol Otis drawing of the spawn of uh, the uh, spawn of Yogg-Sothoth in um, Deities and Demigods. Oh yeah. So if you ever get to it's like Errol Otis, I think is like 
almost like the perfect, you know, Lovecraftian artist. So overall, I think it does fit together very well. I do think that some of the critics, as um, Jeremy mentioned, have a hard time wrapping around their heads that like, because they have such a preconceived notion of what the Cthulhu mythos is and like the sort of nihilism that, that Lovecraft actually isn't as nihilistic as people think he is, right? And, you know, he, he's capable of encompassing multitudes, you know, so anyway, here we go. Um, well, actually, I'm going to hold off on asking the question I was going to ask then, because now that you're saying that he's not as nihilistic as people make him out to be, that reminds me of something else, which is um, the introduction to this um, to this collection by August Derleth. I don't know how many people of you, uh, how many of you read that. Um, but for one thing, I just want to point out that August Derleth clearly has a little bit of a crush on H.P. Lovecraft because he describes him as not at all unhandsome. Um, but other than describing H.P. Lovecraft as not at all unhandsome, um, he also specifically talks about, um, where is that, on page 12, he says, um, the pattern of the mythos is a pattern that is basic to the history of mankind, representing as it does the primal struggle between good and evil. In this, it is essentially similar to Christian mythos, especially relating to the expulsion of Satan from Eden and Satan's lasting power of evil. Right. What I do you guys think about this? <laughs> Rob, Rob, Rob looks like he has opinions. Rob, share, share some of them, please. In a word, no. I think one of the great strengths of Lovecraft's writing is it turns that whole notion uh, Pre-Lovecraft, you had maybe Dracula. You could uh, repel vampires with a crucifix, a, a holy item. And I'm sure there's many other examples. And it seems to me Lovecraft was possibly the first person who dispensed with all of that and just made us all insignificant, which is the true horror of his, of his stories. So mm -hmm. to kind of frame it in this good, evil uh, sort of mindset just really goes against anything Lovecraftian to me. My opinion. The Derlethian heresy. <laughs> <laughs> as, as subsequently carried on by Brian Lumley. Yes. Mm -hmm, indeed. Yeah. No no one expects the Lovecraftian Inquisition. <laughs> right, right. But again, that's probably why people have such a hard time wrapping their heads around the the mildly optimistic ending of the Dunwich Horror or say the Shunned House, for the matter. But uh, Joe, you were shaking your head furiously, also in, in negation of this uh, Durless opinion. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that's a fundamental misreading of it's um, probably the music of Eric Zahn is the story in this collection that shows the most of just the the universe is fundamentally large and terrible and uncaring, and the best we can hope for is that we're not noticed by it. Right, we can shut it out. <laughs> right. I mean, I, you're right. I think that's the most cosmic of all these stories and does, do, doesn't do any explaining. Unlike any of the other stories, there's no explanations. Like he writes the thing, Eric Zahn writes the thing in German, but it gets blown away out the window. And so we never find out like yeah, anything about it. Very, but. very conveniently for, for Lovecraft, it gets blown out the window, never to be seen again. <laughs> effective though. Yeah. It's effective. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to go ahead. No, I think that was his first of his truly cosmic stories. So I'm going to go ahead and ask my question to Adam now, which is, um, Adam, is there like a character from this collection that you particularly liked or really spoke to you? Uh, I like R Robert Blake in The Haunter in the Dark. Uh-huh. Um, kind of a guy, yeah, kind of a guy whose curiosity got the better of him. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, what do you think about that, Jeremy? 
Oh, oh, Robert Blake. Oh, it's it's amusing because that's actually Robert Block. And you're Adam. You're right because you're you're more right than you know. Because as I said, I read the Shambler from the Stars to just for the heck of it. And um, I don't know if any of you know that story, but in that story, young Robert Block ends up because he gets the mysteries of the worm. This his own special um, XP of uh, the Necronomicon. Using that, he gets his friend who's H.P. Lovecraft killed by a star spawn. <laughs> so, yeah, this is the second time <laughs> that Curiosity gets the better of Robert Blake, and this time it, well, well it gets electrocuted. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you're, you're right. It's, uh, um, yeah. There was a third story in that set, I think, Block wrote a response yes. to The Haunter of the Dark, but I don't remember what it was. Or Give me one second, it. I can look that up. Right. I, this I, would have been after one, uh, Lovecraft's Passing. It's what's that? Oh yeah, it was after Lovecraft. Would have been passing. after. The, uh, yeah. Give me a second. It's been a while. Oh, I think it's the Shadow from the Steeple. That would make mm-hmm. sense. Just right. uh, this story is also interesting because again, um, the the superstitious Italians are the ones who actually are sort of these keepers of this sort of um, primal knowledge that will prevent, you know, all annihilation from happening on us. So a lot of times in the Lovecraft stories, the people who are sort of these Augustan, uh, you know, ancient wasps suddenly are, are not up to the task um, as much as they look around on these sort of natives. And so here's the Italians of Federal Hill who instinctively know that they have to go light candles and turn on flashlights and do everything like that to keep the thing contained. I got um, two, th- two things about the haunt in the dock. The first, the first one, we actually run into an eth- ethnicity that Lovecraft actually likes. He seems to be fond of the <laughs> Irish, because if you remember, uh, yeah. he seemed to mm-hmm. laudably talk about the Irish policeman there, and he g- he gave the Irish policeman um, that uh, block that Blake, I'm sorry, Blake was talking to a little bit of an accent. But he said, "Um, oh, there's an a- admiral man," which you know uh, sort of surprised me. Um, I forgot about that. Also, if I remember right, the the protagonist um, of the horror from Red of in Red Hook was also an Irish policeman, if I remember right. We're just, uh, um, and also, um, mm-hmm. response to what you said, Hoy, that it actually reminds me of some things, some criticisms. Uh, well, I don't know if it's criticism, but it, it, something in M.R. James's writing where uh, various critics, and I think the the gentleman on the um, um, podcast, the Curious, have pointed out how the basically. At least in James James' case, and I guess in Lovecraft's case, in James' case, how the lower classes seem to have a more instinctive reaction to the supernatural um, than the, the the high blood, the the wealthy, spectral um, antiquarians do in James' story, and you can see sort of the, the inverse thing. Well, not inverse, uh, a similar thing in Lovecraft's stories, where the you know the primitive, uh, the primitive. Ethnic, ethnic people, you know, the Italians, Poles, whatever, are more instinctively aware, aware of what's going on. Um, they know the truth where, you know, these high-class waspy um, protagonists, you know, are, are disbelieving the, all the mounting evidence that's piling up before their eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. And most of the James protagonists are very skeptical even when these terrible things are happening, there's still a huge amount of denial. And I guess the cliche is they, they go into the local tavern 
and everyone stops, you know, oh, we're going to the castle. Oh, don't go there. Oh, you're superstitious peasants, right? It's a bit of a cliche, I guess, but yeah, it, it does hold very true, I think. Every Hammer horror yeah. Dracula film ever made. <laughs> yeah. Actually, um, one, one last James in connection. I think, I know James was aware of Lovecraft towards the end of his life and had very hard things to say about his style. But I think if I think James would have liked uh, how Lovecraft described the church. He, he, um, Lovecraft did a very good good job in describing the Starry Wisdom Church, and uh, I think maybe Love, um, James would have appreciated that since he was he loved church architecture and all that, and uh, maybe he would have. And he also James also really liked New England too, so maybe he would have liked the description of a New England of admittedly decrepit and falling apart New England church. And uh, also, James didn't live too far from Dunwich oh. <laughs> in the UK, <laughs> which is on the, the Suffolk coast. <laughs> and I feel Don't like manage. Lovecraft isn't historically known for his like really um, um, well-rounded, fully explored character studies. Mm. Like that's not re- like we're, we're, we don't really go to Lovecraft for characters. But I do feel like. Walter de la Porte was actually a pretty fleshed out character. I feel like mm-hmm. we, he did uh, Lovecraft did a really nice job of kind of illustrating this um, lonely, sad man who's currently like in the process of grieving the, de- the death of his son. And he's taken on this project of restoring his ancestral home as like maybe kind of a way of kind of like restoring like his own kind of like sense of loss with his own mm-hmm. family. Um, and I think, I don't know. I feel like that character was really kind of nicely um, illustrated. And I also think it's cool that like kind of once Lovecraft spends several pages telling us about like how crazy the, 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 the rumors are about the De La Pores, He also very specifically says, um, it must not be imagined for a moment that these tales formed my principal psychological environment. On the other hand, I was constantly praised and encouraged by Captain Norris and the antiquarians who surrounded and aided me. So he even goes out of his way to make it very clear that although this is the background of this story, that was not that character's um, kind of emotional environment as this story is unfolding, which I thought was kind of an interesting thing because I don't really feel like Lovecraft usually does things like that. What do you guys think? Adam, Um, do you have opinions? um, Yeah, he's kind of like a... Like, like he, uh, Jeremy was saying earlier that kind of like he doesn't see the supernatural stuff happening and he denies it and everything. And it's kind of a way to have a smart, uh, narrator and a dumb narrator at the same time. It's somebody who says all these weird things are happening, but they just deny it and they're so skeptical that they don't, you know, they don't admit it. And, uh, I guess just from a psychological point, like you're saying, he's just not, he's just not thinking about that. He's just wants to do this, do this restoration, you know, and uh, he doesn't take it seriously. Like the people, the, the locals are warning him, Oh man, it's a terrible place, but he's not taking it seriously. And just, um, I also realized I didn't mention the name of the story. We're, we're talking about the rats and the walls right now. And, um, and Hoy, I'm curious, what do you think about Walter De La Porte and the rats and the walls? Um, I think it's a terrific story with the one problem is that you're constantly like 10 years ago, I would not have felt this way, but you're constantly punched in the face by the name of that cat, that damn cat. Yep. Right. And so, and I'm not going to say the word because, but uh, you can imagine. Um, so it is almost a masterpiece and it's not even necessary that the cat be named that, although I know that was the name of 
Lovecraft's real cat, so maybe we're just missing the cat. Um, but it is a, an incredible story in a lot of ways. I think it is, um, it's that slow burn that he excels in. It is, uh, as you mentioned, Jeff, probably one of his best character portraits, other than maybe uh, it's Charles Dexter Ward. Um, and um, it is also sort of opens these vistas up, you know, slow reveal going down, down, down into the Exum Priory and the substrates of Exum Priory. And even then they only go like just so far, right? And this is precipice that goes even farther. Um, and then there's a couple other things I really like. This, this is the, the really, to me, very funny setup of the Captain Norris he's described as plump from the very beginning. So he's just plump and delicious. Right? He just said, I've constantly mentioned that he's plump. Right, right, right. 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 Um, and then this is external to the story, but actually incredibly funny. I just, I just because of, I was looking at the annotated Lovecraft. Um, so at the end, when he's sort of reverting back through time, and he's speaking all these ancient languages, at one point he's speaking of former Celtic, right? You know, he's going back in time. He speaks like, you know, middle, old English, you know, middle English, then old English and then Latin and then Celtic. And so um, Lovecraft put it in as um, it's uh, basically uh, Gaelic. Right. But the character, the story is supposed to take place near Wales. He goes, oh, you know, I just put it in so it would sound good, but I don't think anyone will notice. But of course, Robert E. Howard yes. wrote a letter to Weird Tales saying he got the wrong form of Celtic in here. <laughs> right? yeah. Super nerdy, like blah, blah, blah. But that's how they became correspondents and friends. Yes. <laughs> he wrote this letter oh, saying right. Lovecraft got it wrong. <laughs> that's really funny. So it's so perfectly like, like <laughs> Robert E. Howard was a D&D player. Right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You've so got your Greyhawk of- more wrong. Speaking yeah. of Robert E. Howard as a D&D player, this might be a good time to transition into the gaming side of the conversation. Um, so maybe we can do a round robin of what we would like to steal from this collection. So Rob, if you're going to steal something from one of these stories and bring it into a Dungeons and Dragons game, well, we can talk Call of Cthulhu a little bit too, but like, let's talk okay. like kind of Dungeons and Dragons style gaming. What would you want to steal from these stories? What is something? You, what is one thing you'd like to steal? I guess the rats in the walls would be a good one because you could have the players staying in this ancient castle, an ancient keep somewhere. Uh, they investigate these strange noises at night and that leads them into this cellar, the subcellar, the uh, whatever you call the bit beneath the subcellar, the bit beneath that, the <laughs> bit beneath. And it could just go on and on, you know, almost thinking of like a Vault of the Drow type of thing or something like that. Mm-hmm. This This huge subterranean world that they're in total uh, ignorance of upon the surface mm-hmm. could be an interesting one totally so you're taking exum priory and the underworld beneath it yes yeah. yeah joe what are you stealing um i'm actually also stealing the rats in the walls because i can totally visualize it as a circa 1980 AD&D first edition module with the cardstock cover and the maps in the blue don't photocopy this ink and just about 12 <laughs> pages of keyed writing to the numbered rooms on the maps. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll rename the cat. We will rename the cat. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, what are you stealing? Oh, what couldn't you steal from this book? Uh, I, the, everything in this book is eminently stealable. There's, there's so much cool stuff. Uh, um, I'll tell you what, I, I, I actually have an idea that um, I, I may do, use in the future since I'm gaming again. Um, colors, colors from outer space. Um, I've come up with this idea 
um, maybe sort of, sort of like an open sandbox. Um, but there's there's once this green and bucolic land, and then this wizard came and immured himself in this iron tower. And over the past century, he's been calling, raining, calling down colors from outer space for some strange reason, just to lay waste, uh, lay waste to the land. And the players, for various reasons, have to go into the co this color blasted waste to deal with things, to find people, to maybe just loot loot places. And they have to deal with colors. They have to deal with mutants. Have whole, basically whole clans of outer mutants created by you know, similar to Wilbur uh, Wilbur Watley roaming around the place and just things like that and that's that's a current idea which i may or may not use in the future for the campaign world i, I i'm using right now perfect and now i'll share what i'm going to steal and then we'll ask adam and hoy what they're going to steal uh for me i loved in the hunter of the dark when we walked into that room in the church and we have the uh what is it the shining trapez uh, trapezahedron um, but I love specifically that like this, this like kind of Hellraiser box is sitting here, but we've got seven chairs around it. Mm. Um, and then there are like these like strange monuments behind each of those chairs. I thought that setup was really cool. And then I also kind of um, wanted to kind of mix that in a little bit with Pikmin's model. So instead of kind of the, um, the Easter Island type faces behind, I wanted some of those like demonic portraits we were talking about behind each of those seven mm. seats. So like, I, I really want to steal that. I've got the seven chairs, a demonic portrait above each, each throne. And in the center of this is this like table with this weird, like Hellraiser box. Adam, what are you stealing? Uh, you, you, you took kind of took mine, the shining trapezohedron. I thought that was a fantastic, like cursed artifact, cursed magic item. And this is similar to, uh, with uh, some with the thing that they found in the Double Shadow story by Clark Ashton Smith, where the history of it is like it really stirs the imagination because it was made on Yugoth, and then the Elder Things had it, and then it was in Volusia with the Lizardmen, yeah. a nice Robert E. Mm -hmm. Howard tie-in, yeah. and then the the Egyptian Pharaoh had it, and then this Wackadoo cult had it. So it's like that just kind of like makes it gives it a history and makes it like a really cool artifact and it's a cursed artifact too. So, and uh, Hoy, what are you stealing? Um, I would do probably two things. Um, one is a little bit less specific, but you had talked about it earlier, his sense of space and, and uh, the setting is so powerful in the stories, like the actual church of Astaria wisdom, like, you know, him having to go down through the bit, you know, he finally finds it on the hill. He climbed along the fence you know, climbs through, through the basement. So that sort of sense of snaking through and describing things. And then similarly with the, with the, the hollow where the, the, the you know, son of Yogg-Sothoth is sort of hiding during the day, right? So really just work the space and, and sort of work that sense of like, can we outrun these things? Can we beat these things? You know, the terrain is such and such, but this thing can climb straight up the, you know, this vertical wall. Can we, can we get away from this, right? Um, the other thing is I would love to do an NPC like Pikmin. I think Pikmin is a great character, right? To establish them long, early in the game, not just for a single adventure. Like, oh, this is artist and you start seeing his, his artworks and stuff like that for sale and stuff like that. Or, you know, it could be a musician, an author or whatever, but some sort of character who has a presence in the universe already as somewhat notorious. Um, I also have a fondness for Pikmin's model 
um, just as a story because all those scenes, every single place I've been in that story, right? Like, cause, you know, That's it used cool. to take the subway park place. Like, oh, what if the ghouls did come up here while I was waiting to go to high school? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, climb up and pull me off the platform. <laughs> so. Well, and Hoy, that, uh, but yeah. um, my, my next question was actually going to be very similar to kind of what you're talking here. So I might, I might, I might already know the answer to your next question. But if you were going to do a um, Call of Cthulhu or Pulp Cthulhu or Lovecraft-esque or whatever kind of actual kind of Cthulhu game you wanted to run, is there a character from this collection you would like to steal either as a protagonist or an antagonist? So is your, is your answer Pikmin? Um, Pikmin uh, would be fun, but I think having Armitage uh, post... Um, Post Dunwich Horror as a potential source of wisdom to your player characters would also be that. Uh, I think either one Dr. of those. Armitage. Would... Yeah. Yeah. Adam, how about you? Okay. Yeah. yeah, that was what, who I was going to say. Henry Armitage, he could be like your mentor or the guy who sends you on the adventure. He could, he could say, you know, I know all about this stuff and, you know, don't mess with the Ouija board or whatever it is. <laughs> right, right. For me, it's it's got to be Azanath. Like I thought she was cool from the thing in the door, uh, on the doorstep. Um, mm-hmm. I really liked that we actually. I mean, yes, uh, we discovered that she's really just kind of her grandpa um, or her father, rather. But um, I still like it was just cool seeing like this like you know badass evil woman who's like you know stealing her husband's body to like run errands to run like evil demonic errands. Um, well, I thought that was really entertaining. It's your. <laughs> It's your evil Lynn fetish, doesn't it, Jeff? Exactly. I want to play her. <laughs> uh, Jeremy, which character are you going to steal? Oh, um, uh, I'd have to think about that. I just wanted to mention, actually, uh, talking about Armitage, um, Kiosium actually uses him as a patron for their um, Return to Dunwich source book um, back in the 90s. That basically, that, that, um, the Return to Dunwich, they sort of set up like a sandbox but the general setup is that Armitage sends your your you know your players out to make sure that the Watley legacy is truly crushed after the events of um, the Dunwich Horror. All your suggestions are good. I actually I'm thinking um, actually just maybe as a weird incident or maybe a way to get people into maybe, perhaps even interdimensional planner play. Um, Eric Zahn, um, yeah. this mysterious musician who just knows things and maybe i don't know maybe even the um the climax or the aftermath is his last great musical duel with this um uh with whatever he was um dealing with you get swept away to another dimension or something like that uh be like interested. how that neighborhood didn't really seem to exist oh, too, that yeah. neighborhood in paris you know they could yeah. never find it again you know <laughs> that, that, it was so dreamlike that whole yeah. setting it's um yeah the, the music of Eric Zahn is a wonderful story. It, um, that and the color from outer space are probably the two best stories in the collection. The color mm-hmm. from outer space actually isn't in the collection that. Um, oh. It's in the hardcover. Oh, it's in the. Oh, hardcover. was it? Oh, I thought that okay. was on the list you sent for the version you went. You you uh. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I still read it. <laughs> I enjoyed it's, it. It it is yeah. my favorite Lovecraft story. Uh, it's it's in the hardcover, and then the paperback. I think is about half the stories. I was going to ask Joe um, which character you you want. Um, I would probably Edward and Asenath Derby because that was such a um, interesting to see the contrast between the two and the way that Edward would light up when Asenath took possession and go tooling down the road in her powerful motor car. And Rob, 
I think Wilbur, Wilbur's a little bit of a wasted character in a way. It's one disappointment for me in, in the story is that you've got this seven foot, eight foot tall, partly interdimensional being who basically gets taken out by Rover, the guard dog. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit disappointing. You think Wilbur might have a little bit more about him than that. But, uh, if if he could have lived, or perhaps he had brothers or sisters, or there's something else there, that well, that kind of character would, uh, because you've got the the intelligence, if you like, plus this monstrous aspect of work as well. It's a nice mix, I think. Right, right. I mean, I think all the Watleys were well drawn. I mean, Lavinia was very interesting, and yeah, old man, old man Watley, mm. yeah. or Waitley, however you pronounce it. Um, so a little thing about um, Asenath, so I'd forgotten about just two things. I think this was after Lovecraft had been married to Sonia Green for two years. So I wonder if that was a little play on his married relationship, you know, this powerful, domineering woman, right? Not necessarily that she actually was, but that his, being his perception of it. And then um, according to this annotated Lovecraft, so Asenath uh, is the name of Joseph's Egyptian wife, who is also the mother of Ephraim, but in this case, Ephraim is her father, right? <laughs> And then Asenath, in, apparently in ancient Egyptian, apparently means she belongs to her father. So he's playing Ooh. these levels of meaning with a name in the relationship, too. So yeah. it's pretty cool. Nice. nice. Yeah. Interesting. Now, the one story that none of us have brought up, I don't think yet, is In the Vault. That's the only other story in, in the paperback collection that we haven't right. discussed at all. Right. Um, Adam, is this a throwaway story or is there or is In the Vault a what, what do you think? I think. I was wondering the whole time if this is supposed to be funny. Is it supposed to be a funny story? It it wasn't my favorite, but it was, I don't know. It was weird. I mean, he even makes a joke. He even makes an allusion to like in other hands, it would have been a comedy. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, It's minor Lovecraft at best. I mean, it's his, 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 uh, it's basically one of the most traditional of his horror stories. Basically, doing a macabre, grotesque, very New England um, legend, I guess you could say. It's okay. I know. I know. Uh, someone made a, a neat little stop motion animation, animated movie from that story um, that uh, was on one of the Lurk of the Lobby VHS tapes. You may be able to find it on YouTube. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely not one of my favorites. It's it's pretty much forgettable in a lot of ways. So um, in, the, um, in one of Lovecraft's letters, um, August Derleth points out that Lovecraft says the proper function of a short story is to reflect pow- powerfully a single mood, emotion, or authentic situation in life. So whether or not we agree if that's the purpose of the short story, that's Lovecraft's idea of the purpose of a short story. So based on that, Joe, do you think Lovecraft is successful in... Um, in doing what he thinks writing the purpose of a short story is um in some cases yes i I think two two specific examples from this collection are actually um in the vault which i I was surprised when i was checking the copyrights to see that it was 1932 which is relatively late it it felt more like some of his earlier edgar Allan poe riffing Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, music of Eric Zahn was an incredibly moody piece. Um, so some of his other stuff, especially when you start to get into his Lovecraftian, the Dunwich Horror, and some of the others that are not in this collection, they get long enough that I don't think that you can necessarily expect a novella to sustain a single mood in the same way that you do a, a very short, focused piece. What do you think, Rob? 
Yeah, I mean, I think In the Vault to me had the feel of one of those uh, Tales from the Crypt or Creep Show type episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I read it as a kind of humorous, grotesque story, really. Um, I, I guess in terms of mood, it's there and it's got something, but it's almost like a sort of round the fire Halloween type story to me. Right, right. It exactly reminds me. Do you remember those books that you used to have, like when you were in middle school, like how to create your own little haunted house? Like peel some grapes and sit in the dark, and you feel like, oh, you're feeling the eyeball. <laughs> Put your hands yeah. in the spaghetti. That's what it felt like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it felt like there was like the setup and then the punchline. Like it, it, it right. that was kind of how the story was set up. Right, as well. and, and, and to the. Yeah, in the worst way, because Lovecraft usually relies on that last sentence to like kick the story over the top. And in this way, it's just like, it's all just set up for that last line. And I, th- I think I read somewhere it was turned down by Weird Tales because they said it might be too gruesome or something. Really? Barn- yeah. yeah. <laughs> Farnsworth sure. Wright was so, uh, so inconsistent. I mean, yeah, that was too gruesome, but The Love Dead wasn't, if you've heard about <laughs> The Love Dead, which is basically. Um, Love, Lovecraft ghost wrote it um, for one of his friends, and basically it dealt with necrophilia. You know, that's that's Farnsworth, right? He, he, he's uh, let's just say he's can be very considered very controversial in weird tales circles, uh, but whatever. And while we've been chatting, I just thought of another thing that I would like to steal. Um, and this is something that we saw both in the Rats in the Walls and in the Haunter of the Dark. But we had these moments where our protagonists as they are kind of approaching these like, you know, otherworldly powers, suddenly they discover or develop this knowledge that like they suddenly have access to, like suddenly in uh, the rats in the walls, we've got um, Walter de la Porte talking about Nyarlathotep. And then in the hunter of the dark, we've got um, Robert Blake suddenly like knowing who like Azathoth is. And it's like, I think it might be kind of cool to like incorporate into your game where like you are now like kind of in this like mysterious place, but like the deeper you get into it, like suddenly you're just like understanding things about it more. Like you can start giving characters information that they've had all along, quote unquote. Relation through osmosis? Yeah, something like that might be interesting. That's that's kind of like the mechanic in Call of Cthulhu, yeah. Where you, as your Cthulhu mythos knowledge increases, so your maximum sanity decreases. Yes, <laughs> and I guess in that, people mostly get it through reading books, but right, right. also this perhaps, like you say, these shock revelations can can bring this knowledge in in some right. way. Yeah. In fact, you're correct. Uh, mechanically, I think the first time you go insane you'll get 5% Cthulhu Mythos yep. knowledge. And then each subsequent time you go insane, you get another 1%. So, um, and I wonder if it's also sort of a, again, he was not religious and it was, uh, but it was sort of a play on sort of like Christian revelation, you know, sort of like this knowledge that ascends upon you without, you know, necessarily study or anything like that. In, in particular, in uh, Robert Blake's case, you know, they had some baseline of knowledge, but that, you know, or the poor had, didn't, had, hadn't studied any of that, right? He wasn't a scholar of that, you know, at best he was a genealogist. The, the other thing so, I thought that might be interesting uh, across all these is there there's some quite big heavy hitting mythos stories in here. Um, but from a game perspective, when you look at them, they're all rather different. Uh, one involves ritual, one involves possession, one involves using music to keep the monsters at bay. It's, it's how do you then use this as a basis to make a, a game system? Uh, the, the conventional sort of Dennis Wheatley type approach is there's specific rituals for specific things. We're fighting off Satan, perhaps. Lovecraft's mythos seems a lot more uh, disorganized, if that's the word. Right. 
and I think, in fact, um, the you know, I mean, I think he was playing with a lot of same themes, but he was not really attempting to systematize that stuff in a way that really was Derleth coming along later, who was trying to systematize mm. and do all that. And obviously, yeah. people as gamers, gamer type people, tend to have that want ability <laughs> to want to categorize everything, right? You know, guy jacks, you know, not <laughs> you know, perhaps, perhaps to a T, you know. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll just say say this about Duralith. I'm I'm I tend to be far more willing to give Duralith a pass for uh, his mistakes than I am the camp, if only because at least Duralith personally knew Lovecraft and was friends and you know was very good friends with him. You know, but again, it, it's strange that the the these two titans of weird stories, their their literary their overs fell into hands of people who basically, at a very basic level just did not understand them mm -hmm. sort of strange sort of serendipity i guess yeah. perhaps there's a, a commercial aspect versus an artistic aspect going on there i don't know the, the yeah. two really seem to, to mix yeah. also fair so we are starting to uh run out of time uh so but we still have some time to chat about some stuff uh so i'm curious rob is there kind of an, a like did you have like a thought you really wanted to chat about that we didn't get a chance to get to um oh from a gaming uh, perspective or a literary perspective about anything in here i think that was it really the, the the difference in all these approaches to to the mythos from lovecraft himself uh, and again i i agree with what hoy said he I, he didn't have an overriding plan here or anything it yeah. seemed to develop very organically and of course it, other people added and he borrowed ideas and other people borrowed his ideas and I, I, it's nice to see that process continuing, really, even into the, the modern day. People are still adding to it, sometimes more successfully than others, perhaps. But it's uh, it's an interesting phenomena. Mm -hmm. How about you, Jeremy? Was there something you wanted to chat about we didn't get a chance to get to? Oh, there's so many things. I, I mean, there's a lot of trivia uh, in these in these um, in these stories that uh, you could talk about for hours, um, as Hoy said. All, all the all the hints and winks um, that Love, Lovecraft puts into uh, his stories, mentioning Howard's creations, Darrell's creations, Smith's creations, um, you know, other, you know, uh, veiled caricatures of people he knew. Like I've heard that um, uh, Edward Derby from uh, the thing on the doorstep, at least physically, maybe in some ways, emotionally, was based on his good friend uh, Frank Belknap Long. Um, mm -hmm. Which, if you actually know a bit about. Frank Belknap Long's personal life um, actually is, is sort of fits because he ended up marrying a woman who was very, very domineering, you know, but I believe that was after Lovecraft died, but Lovecraft had some foresight in that, uh, you could argue. Um, there's so much stuff you can talk, talk, talk about because Lovecraft, like Smith and Howard, is a very rich writer. Uh, so many mm -hmm. things. I guess the only other thing small compared to that um, you can make an argument that uh, Armitage and his friends Morgan and um, Rice were a sort of adventuring party. Sure. Yep. Sure. One guy's got the rifle, yep. even though they yep. say not, not going to do any one, good. One's yep. got the sprayer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He got the well, even the, uh, the sprayer. <laughs> oh, and the Exum Priory was an adventuring party. Oh, yeah. That in a dungeon, too. Yeah. How about you, Joe? So. Well, the. Prior to this, the last time I read Lovecraft, I read uh, Joshi put out a Variorum edition that rearranged all of the stories into the order of composition. 
And it was really interesting to read them that way because you could see much more organically how things were developing. Like there would be Naralathotep would be just a throwaway name in one story, and then he'd take on a larger role in a subsequent story. Or Yug Satha was part of a random incantation in Charles Dexter Ward, and then he turns up as the main driver behind the Dunwich Horror. Also, as as the stories progress, the characters within the stories are a lot more knowledgeable about the existence of the Cthulhu mythos than in the original Call of Cthulhu. Nobody had heard nothing about nothing. And then by the time you get to some of the later Shadow Out of Time or Whisper in Darkness, everybody has read at least one copy of the Necronomicon at some point or another. (laughs) I'm just going to quickly point out, since we don't really have time to, to get deep into it, Lovecraft never meant to, to categorize or systemize his anti-mythology, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, and in that way, it gave it the feel. It's why it's such a successful hoax, so to speak, because it has because it's so inconsistent. It's not internally consistent. It feels like real mythology, real folklore. And how about you, Adam? In the Dunwich Horror, it's weird that they have a dog guarding the rare books collection <laughs> in the library. <laughs> That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. And, and if uh, He was a very good dog. He was a good dog. And if you think about it, he's actually the one who prevented Wilbur Watley from calling the Og Sothoth. He was the one who really saved the day. So. Right, uh, Good dog. <laughs> Good, Good boy. All, all dogs go to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Hoy, unless you have something pressing you want to chat about, do you want to wrap this up or do you have a, do you have a final thought? Uh, sure. I think just, a, um, I mean, this is actually too big of a topic, but I'll just say briefly, we all know about Lovecraft's extremely problematical elements uh, both of character and in his writing, but it is also easy to overlook his sort of Generosity of spirit. I mean, he nurtured so many writers. He he made he he had sort of an interaction both within the letters, but actually even in the stories, as we witnessed with the Hunter of the Dark, right? So that I think he's a much more complex people person than both his uh, major defenders make him out to be and his detractors make him out to be. And mm-hmm. I think we're the richer for it. Um, right. So there we go. Cool. Yeah. So um, Hoy, how can folks find us on the internet? Sure. Uh, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, please drop us a line at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. We're also on MeWe and Facebook. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes, you can head on over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club and show us your support there. We really appreciate that. Uh, prior to each of our episodes, we have these patron book clubs. And this week, our patron book club and our episode is the same thing. So that's cool. Um, but um, I'd like to give a shout out to a handful of our patrons, uh, Demo Saklas, Eric Hoffman, Lapis Dust, uh, David J. Hotstream, Noah Green, Matt Richards, Ian Little, Adrian Romero, thank you so much for your support. And I'd also like to thank you guys, Jeremy Harper, Joe Hoopman, Rob Poyton, and Adam Styers. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. This has been a lot always of great fun. To, always great to talk to you guys. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. pleasure. Thank you. It's great. All right. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>